you know, start a list and cut down Arkansas's trees and make it into paper and you'll never finish because we may not remember, we may not understand, we may not envision all we have to be thankful for, but there's not enough paper to express how thankful we need to be. Not, not in a grovelly bad way, but in a wow, thank you, Lord way. Wow, thank you, Lord. Wow, thank you, Lord. In James 1.27, there's a scripture that kind of leads up to what we're going to talk about tonight. In James 1.27, it says, <clears throat> well, let's go to James 1.27. I know what it says, but I'll give you time to turn there. In 127, it says, pure and lasting religion, it's uh, in the sight of God our Father, means that we must care for orphans and widows in their troubles and refuse to let the world corrupt us. So one of the things that it says there, it says two things, caring for orphans and widows. This is pure religion. This is pure. This is, uh, this is something that, think of it this way. God gives without the expectation of return. God gives, the sun shines on everybody whether they acknowledge God or not. You, you can blaspheme God all day long and that sun keeps coming up and shining on your house just like mine. So God gives without an expectation of return. He gives in, in an unending abundance as long as we're here in this life. God is good. And when we give to a widow or an orphan, there's no expectation of return. If you're giving to somebody that's struggling, somebody that's in a mess, don't ever let them say, I'll pay you back. If you can't give it, don't give it. Otherwise, you're going to let the devil have a stronghold in your life that's going to create bitterness and hostility because I helped them and they never made an effort to return it. Don't give it if you can't let it go. Don't give it if you can't part from it. Don't give it if you can't just release it. Now, if somebody gives something back, yay! But do it without the expectation of return because that's where you'll be free. It always feels good to give. It does not feel good to expect return and not receive it. When you give to widows and orphans, the reason it's pure is because if it's a widow or an orphan, if it's somebody in dire need, and we could go beyond widows and orphans, of course, but if it's somebody in dire need, it feels good to help somebody with no expectation of return. If a widow needs your support, let's say an old widow down at the end of the street can't mow her lawn anymore and you see the grass growing up. I've seen Christians that their family took on as a project mowing that lady's lawn down the street. And they just showed up and did it. Matter of fact, I know that our pastor just decided the lines are a little blurred in the little cul-de-sac he's in. He'll just keep mowing. So... He mows a couple other yards, and praise the Lord that we have a pastor with that heart, you know. And, you know, the funny thing is, people, when you do things for them, they're not necessarily uh, grateful. Can you imagine mowing somebody's yard and they come out and say, hey, you missed a spot? <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm not charging you. Yeah, but do a good job. Come on, show some pride in your work. What's the deal? You know, it is funny, isn't it? I used to mow a lot of yards for widows when I was a young man. I was doing it for pay. I was doing it for a little money in high school. And uh, so I'd, you know, make $5 to mow somebody's yard. And I had one widow in particular. She went to church with me. And uh, my parents used to pick her up to go to church once in a while. She would always buy Pepsi. And she didn't drink Pepsi. When I'd finished mowing the yard, she wouldn't pay me until I sat at the kitchen table, had a Pepsi, and visited with her. And we did that every time. And I remember her more than any of the other widows that I mowed for up and down the street, because not because of the Pepsi, but because she wanted to stop me long enough to visit with her so that she wouldn't be quite so lonely. And you know, really all people need is somebody to hear them. You know, one of the reasons we marry is to have a witness to our life. It's no fun to do something and not have a witness. It's no fun to go somewhere and have a spectacular time and nobody to share a conversation about it. The reason we marry is so that we have somebody to witness our life, somebody that was there, somebody that saw it, somebody that celebrated it with us, somebody that shared it. 
when the Bible talks about widows and orphans, understand that widows didn't have any property rights. Widows would be in a very difficult strait once their husband passed. If they had a child that could help take care of them, that's one thing. That's what's happening in China. When China used, now they got rid of the one child policy. For one thing, they had no girls. China got so bad that men were kidnapping women from other cities. They were kidnapping women away from their husbands so that they could have a wife. So they would kidnap a woman in another city or province and bring her home and make her their wife because there's not enough women to go around. And uh, so the Chinese moved off of the one-child one policy. But the reason that men in, in China are so much more valuable is that's your retirement. Your sons are required to take care of you, not your daughter. So the sons are your heritage. Without a son, you don't have somebody to help you when you're too old to work. So you have to have a son. So when, when they went to the one-child policy, the daughters were perishing because they were still trying to have a son. And it, it made a shortage. You know, this happened in, in America, too, when the coolies came to America. Mostly men came over to work in America. They came to work. They didn't bring families. They brought men. So there was a whole generation of bachelors that didn't go home. And they didn't have any children. They didn't have any women to marry in their culture. And, you know, so they perished without a, a heritage. When we talk about widows, we also need to remember widowers. You know what you call a man without a brain? A widower. Yeah, I already gave that away, but uh, men and women have been studied about beyond marriage. Uh, when somebody perishes, and you know, divorce has really flooded our culture, so we have a lot of divorce. Uh, my wife and I are uh, divorced and remarried, both of us, and so we know the pain of that. When God said he hates divorce, you know why he hates it? Because nobody wins. Divorce hurts everybody. Nobody comes out of divorce like, boy, that was awesome. Got rid of that one. We come out of it even if it's for safety, even if it's uh, for a, biblical, a biblically justified reason. We come out of it uh, broken in, in some way or another. Something's not the same. Now, I, I've seen people uh, hop and skip and act like it doesn't hurt, but it, it does. And that's just the reality. They studied men that were widowers and women that were widows. My grandmother was a widow longer than she was married. My grandfather died in his 60s. My grandmother died in her 90s. So she was married to grandpa, you know, 25 or 30 years, but she lived probably 30 to 35 years beyond him. She was younger than him. So she lived, you know, 40 years beyond my grandfather. Um, yeah, probably about 40 years. And... Uh, what they found when they studied widowers and widows, men do not fare well without women. And women, you've held that over us long enough. But <laughs> men do not succeed well without women. Women civilize us, men. We're just uh, in need of women. They found that when women remarried after the loss of a spouse, they had about an equal amount of happiness and contentment to the ones that did not remarry. Isn't that interesting? Women do just as well without a man as they do with a man. Now don't hold that against us. <laughs> be fair, be kind. But women sometimes enjoy the time after uh, you know, 30 years of marriage or whatever. And men do not thrive. Men tend to live a shorter life without a spouse. Women tend to, well, they just live forever. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> we not only think alike, we're wired differently. And so that's why in this age when they're trying to blur gender lines and we got all kinds of craziness going on, it's, it's not healthy. God made it to be a man and a woman. Men are testosterone, women are estrogen, and they come together and make a whole. That's why two become one flesh. They make a whole. It's not that you're half a person. You're a whole person. I'm a whole person. But we contribute different things to the equation. You know, it's interesting. Uh, the women's liberation movement said men bad, women good. 
and the women's liberation movement said men are aggressive and they're mean and they're not nice. Actually, it's more relational than it is gender. Now that there are uh, um, couples that are of one gender, what we found is that one will be dominant and sometimes be abusive, just like in a male and a female relationship. It's a, it's a power thing, not a gender thing. Isn't that weird? Well, the truth is, men are supposed to protect women, provide for women. Men, are, uh, always women, if you want to learn a secret about men, <clears throat> men need the esteem of their women. But you know that old saying, behind every good man is a good woman. It's the truth. Men need women to respect them. Now, women are nesters. They need men to provide and protect. That's what a man's supposed to do. He's supposed to provide and protect. Now, we can get all sensitive and say men shouldn't have loud voices, but God gave us more of a booming voice. And women got the pretty voice. You know, they got the pretty voice. And if a man goes around with a pretty voice, you're going to say, that's a pretty boy, and I'm going to stay away from that one. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you need to lower your voice, mister. That ain't right. God made us the way we are. A matter of fact, what they found is uh, we've had to make laws because in women's competition, if a boy gets in there acting like a girl, he wipes the girls out in sports because we're built different. D doesn't that seem logical? I mean, isn't, don't we, we don't need even half a brain to figure that out. If a man can understand that, I know that the women can because they work both sides of the brain. We kind of paddle on one side, but, uh, you know, we really do have a separated brain. Men have a canal in the middle, and we crisscross once in a while. Women are just one thing here, and they just talk to themselves from both halves, and they do really well that way. Understand that when we talk about this passage, we want to know that, what did it say in James? It said, pure and lasting religion in the sight of God our Father means we must care for orphans and widows in their troubles. God believes and wants us to understand that his love is not going to overlook the needs of others. Much of the prayers that we pray is about me or about mine. Me or mine. We pray for my spouse, my children, my friends, my church, my people. And God's more inclusive than that. When he says he's got the whole world in his hands in that little song, it's really true. God is all-inclusive. Now, don't you feel that moment when it's like, I just can't be everything to everybody. You know, my kids can tap my wallet better than your kids. You, you know that's true, right? My kids call me up and say, and I'm like, how much is it going to be this time? And really, at the end of the day, I'm glad when I can. The hardest thing in the world is to say no to my kids. Do you ever have that trouble? Maybe you don't. Maybe you say no, no, no all the time. No, 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 no. But God wants us to be so inclusive that they find us the most generous people. Waitresses don't always like Christians because we're cheap. We are. Bunch of cheapskates. Put a bigger tip on the bill. Uh, let, me, let me put it in perspective, okay? I was going to my first church. I was being taken there by a, a district official. They were taking me up there to look at my first church and decide if I want it. And they were deciding if they'd let me have it. I was only 20 years old. I wasn't married yet. And we were making a decision, okay? So I'm going to my first church, and we stop at a Denny's to meet with another pastor that has a church on the way, and the official had some business to do with him. So we stop at a Denny's, and we're at a Denny's, and the three of us eating was about 25 bucks. So they said, Tim, we got the meal. You just leave a tip. Would you leave a tip? And I said, yeah, that's a no-brainer. I'm going to pay less than you guys. And I threw five bucks down. Now, what's five bucks equal? A 20% tip, right? I mean, we all tithe. You just double tithe. That's 20%, right? They scolded me that it was embarrassing to leave that much money on the table. And I was offended at the time that they couldn't see how important it was for me to be generous with the waitress. That wasn't a flirting thing. That was a supporting her household thing and sharing out of my wealth into her life. 
if it might have, might have been a hymn. I don't remember the story. He's 40 years old. But, but I was showing kindness to the person that had served us. And that's what I was doing. But see, a lot of Christians are like, I've already tied. Let God give her something. You know, I don't have time for this. We need to be the most generous people in town. How many times could you have done without something and been kind to somebody else? We don't need to turn our back on anybody. And I'm not talking about who picks up the check or, or you know, uh, just be aware. God's going to throw people in your path and see what you do about it. What are you going to do about it? Let's see what happens when somebody gets thrown in Jesus' path. In the book of Luke, chapter 7, starting at verse 11, that should be an easy scripture to remember, 7-11. Great place for Slurpees. They probably came up with a big gulp. God bless them. <laughs> Hallelujah. Probably run by the devil. That's why I'm overweight. But anyway... I still like Slurpees and Big Gulps. I don't drink soda anymore, but I used to. Soon afterward, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain. With a great crowd following him, a funeral procession was coming uh, out as he approached the village gate. So you have a crowd following Jesus. He's just tromping along with a bunch of people following him, which was becoming very common for Jesus. Remember the woman with the issue of blood? She reached out and touched the hem of his garment, and he felt virtue leave him into the faith of that woman and stem, stop her bleeding. And so he felt, you know, he felt her faith draw on him. And he said, who touched me? And they said, with this crowd, there's no telling. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have touched you, Jesus. We're all shoulder to shoulder out here walking around, and uh, there's no telling who touched you. He said, no, 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 this was different. Somebody touched touched me. But imagine the crowds that were just thronging Jesus. Jesus was different than the religious leaders. He was more real. He was more down to earth. He made more sense. He explained the difficult truths of God in a way that they understood. So here was Jesus just thronged with people. So he's coming to town with a crowd, like leading a parade. And out of town is coming a funeral. I drive past two funeral homes to work. And every now and then they're going out to the Memorial Cemetery, so uh, they'll pass by, you know, and traffic will stop. I, I always thought it was interesting. We'll block an ambulance in traffic, but once they die, we're heading for the ditches, you know, and let them by. It's really strange, isn't it? Once they're dead, it's too late. They're wherever they're going, and uh, we can't save them. But we do it out of respect. and. We have cemeteries that are covered with little crosses and several times a year we put flags out and flowers and we do the best we can to honor those that have gone before. Isn't it amazing? Have you been by a cemetery with a large uh, headstone of some kind? You ever been to that cemetery and you don't even know who it is? You don't have a clue. I remember I used to drive by one and it was on the side of a big highway and it was a little cemetery and there was one spire, one, one you know, Big stone pointer. I don't know if he's pointing to heaven or just raising his hand, but there was this one long one, and it was probably 20 feet tall. It was huge. The base was huge. It was as big as this platform and went up 20 feet. I drove by it many times. I have no idea who that was. And they put it there so people would remember who that was. Our capital is littered with people we do remember. You know, Abraham Lincoln has a monument, Washington has a monument, Jefferson has a monument. We remember these founders, and so we do. But what about all the other people? All the other people that fought for our freedoms in every war we've been in. I look at those cemeteries and it just makes me sad to see a cemetery that's thousands of crosses just rising and falling over the hills of a cemetery. And once their families have gone a few generations, they don't even remember. They don't even know who that is. I have a, a great-grandfather, uh, Greenbury Graves, and he's supposed to be full-blooded Indian. And I hear all kinds of mythological tales about him. 
and I've never been able to prove any of them. You know, that he rode with Roosevelt and blah, 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 blah. I don't know anything about him. I can't find anything on him. My grandfather, uh, Green, uh, my grandfather, Lonnie Keith, was involved in laying some of the stone on West Mountain. So, you know, he was here and he did my uncles and many of my cousins and stuff. They laid, laid a lot of rock work around here. Not a big deal, but it's all the history I've got on some of it. Some people I have no history at all. I go back, I've seen pictures of some relatives. I don't know their name. I don't know who they are. I have pictures of old people in my house that my family knows that belong to my wife that I don't even remember. I don't remember them. But, I mean, they're precious to her, but she has stories still about them. But our children and even our grandchildren, they won't even know. Why are the old people on the wall? Who are those people? Those are really old pictures. You know what I mean? Funerals. We don't talk about death and dying nearly enough. We're not really prepared for it. You know, Christians, our funerals always need to be a joyous occasion. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Are you ready to celebrate eternity? Or are you hanging on to this for dear life because it's what we know? We know this life. Oh, hang on, brother. Or are we holding this loose like, <laughs> if they take my life, it's going to be so much better. It'll be a thank you card I send them. It won't be a how dare you. It'll be, hey, guys, you might think you're doing something terrible to me, but you're doing something wonderful. I'm going to meet Jesus. It's not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing. Wonderful. So Jesus is pulling a crowd with him, okay? So imagine a crowd. It doesn't matter. It could have been this size. It could have been greater. We know that he gathered four and 5,000 at a time. So it could have been in the thousands, but it could have been 100 people following him. It could have been 50. It could have been 30. But there was a crowd following him. Just imagine if it was a crowd like this on a dirt road, walking along at Jesus' pace. They were filling the road for quite a ways. And then there's a funeral coming toward him. Jesus encountered a widow who had lost her son. So here we are, a funeral procession coming out as he approached the village gate. A boy who had died, the only son of a widow. What does that tell you? She's lost her support. It would be like if the government told you the checks aren't coming anymore. And for a widow that's on maybe Social Security and trying to make her Medicare you know, payments for her supplements and whatnot. And she barely, my grandmother was in the gap years. She lived on $700 a month, 700 bucks a month. She paid all her bills, owned her own property, owned her own car, did her own maintenance, stubborn, mowed her own lawn, 90 years old out there pushing lawnmower. I sent my son over there and I said, you push that lawnmower, don't let her do it. She smacked him and said, the doctor said it's okay and I need to. And out she went, you know, pushing her lawnmower. And you didn't fight her. She was going to do it. I remember the doctor told her the sun was good for her. Her legs looked like a basted turkey. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. She'd pull up the legs on her pants. Connie's nodding her head. We've seen it. She would be sitting on her porch with her legs propped out in the sun, and she'd be reading a book or something. And her legs looked like a basted turkey. That crinkly skin was just a nice golden brown. And, uh, I mean, it looked tasty. I don't know what it would be like, but it was uh, terrible. I'm just saying, you know, she was, she was cooked all the way. My grandmother was a nut. I'll tell you an example of it. I had macaws. And after my divorce, I lived near my parents for a while. I converted a garage into a living quarters. And I had a parrot. I had a blue and gold macaw. And I commuted to work, so I was gone. You know, it, it was a, you know, a 10-hour day probably. And... My grandmother just could, wasn't having it. That bird being in that cage for that long just isn't acceptable. And with no fear of that bird. Have you ever seen a macaw? That's a big bird. She would take that bird outside. Now the bird's wings were clipped, but she would take the bird outside. He would climb a tree. He'd go up there in this tree and out on a branch and he'd shake the branch and he'd pull all the leaves off of it. He killed the tree eventually. But she would sit at the bottom of the tree in a chair reading a book. And her friend drove up the driveway and said, do you know there's a macaw up there? Yeah, he'll come down when he's done. And just shake in the tree. And eventually he'd come down and she'd put him back in the cage. My grandmother was amazing. 
she lived as a widow longer than she lived married. She had one son, and so he spent 20 years of his life supporting her. You know, he retired early. He thought he'd be on the road and living the high life. And from 56 to 76, he lived next door to her so that he could make sure she was taken care of. The Bible says, honor your mother and father that your days will be long upon the earth. What's it saying? If you kick grandma to the curb, what do you think we're going to do to you? You can't kick grandma to the curb and not take care of her and expect us to take care of you. Now, we live where we're supposed to plan for retirement and, you know, buy a yacht and sell off into the distance. And a lot of our kids would say, we'll contribute, you know, just go. But at the same time, you know, God created this family unit to take care of itself, to be self-replicating, to take care of itself, not only to provide for children, but to provide for the elderly. But here is a woman who lost her only son. Not a, my dad was an only child. I was accused of being an only child. I never felt good about that. That's never felt like a compliment because it, it felt to me like they were saying I was selfish. That's what it always felt like. I have a sister. I wouldn't admit it at the time, but I have one. She wasn't in, you know, like uh, witness protection or anything. I just, uh, I don't know. I was a nerdy boy that didn't like his nerdy sister hanging around. You know, your baby sister is like, oh. But uh, my dad said he knew that. I said, well, you never said nothing about it. He said, well, she did. She's very proud of her brother, but I was rude as a young man, as a boy embarrassed by his sister that was three years younger. She always seemed goofy to me. So, you know, I did what boys do. I avoided my sister. Some do, some don't. If you were really good to your little sister, good for you. We'll talk later. But anyway. Here's the thing, this woman had lost her means of support. It's not just that she lost a son that she loved, she lost her means of support. Now she would be without somebody to provide and she would probably be just about at the point of a beggar to try to make sure that she survived. She had no family. And when you have no property rights and you have no family, you have nobody. There wasn't any government check coming from Jerusalem to take care of anybody. She was on her own, and now she had nothing. So you can imagine. You know, at that time, and we see it in other cases in the Bible, they had mourners that were hired to well, and you know, and they were all fake. But I'll guarantee you, her welling was for real. God, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And then God showed up. God shows up in the middle of our crisis. Has he shown up in yours? If you don't believe he has, you haven't been looking. If you don't believe that God's been there the whole time, then ask yourself, how did you survive till today? I know there's times that the car should have smacked my car. I lived in a place where it's foggy. We get a little fog here, but, you know, I grew up in a place where it was heavy fog. But people that live in fog get kind of immune to it. Do you, you ever live around something where you kind of get immune to it? I was just talking to somebody about being in Oklahoma with somebody. We were in a tornado. I watched a telephone pole snap about four or five feet off the ground. It snapped and swung on the wires and sparks are flying. I looked over this way and a tree cracked and split and fell to the ground. And we're in a truck that's kind of lifting. In the back seat, all of a sudden, I hear feverish tongues coming out of Connie. Feverish tongues, just speaking in tongues. And this guy's on the phone going, well, son, where do you think we ought to go eat? I think that cafe has a pretty good, you know, chicken fried steak. And I'm going, we need to go for cover, you know, and he just drives away. And so he's following these other cars and they go into underground parking. I'm thinking, well, okay, we're going into underground parking. He just drives on up and off to the cafe and we pull at the cafe and he said, well, they're open. Let's go get something to eat. You get sort of oblivious, right? I never let off the gas in the fog because I'm expecting the other people not to let off the gas in the fog. And I've driven in fog where you can just see the next line on the road, sometimes where you could barely see that. And we usually just cruised right on through it. So I'm coming onto a bridge, coming down onto a bridge, and I know there's a fishing spot over there, so there's a break in the yellow line because people are turning to go down into a fishing spot. So I'm confiscating. 
And when I saw the line again, it was on the other side of the car. Those are moments when you think, God, <laughs> I'm glad you kind of broke the traffic up a little bit or something because I wouldn't have even seen him coming. In that lane, going that way, at that speed, I would have been out on a bridge colliding with something and not even seen it coming. I would have seen their headlights at the last minute. I whipped the car back over, broke into a cold sweat. Understand this. The fact that you're here is by the grace of God. Your heart doesn't beat at your accounting. All right, heart, we're getting up today. Let's get with it. Come on. You might be able to raise your heart rate with a good walk or getting on a treadmill, but you do not control whether or not that heart beats. You know, people get pacemakers. Now I got it under control. That pacemaker is not controlling your life. God is. We live by the grace of God. So this widow is seeing a loss of support. Now she may have very well been saying, God, I trust you. And we need to trust God. You know, the problem is sometimes God's our last resort. He needs to be our first resort. God, we're coming to a crossroad. What should I do? Give me some direction. God, I'm listening. Instead, we take the wrong direction. We end up in the ditch. We end up upside down. The car's filling with water, and we're going, God, save me. He said, you know, I was standing back there at the crossroad directing you to go the other way. But we weren't listening. I... I really disliked that song I did it my way. There were a lot of crooners that sang that song back in the day. I did it my way. And they go through all this list of things they did. I did it my way. So what? What did it get you? If we want God's full approval, full blessing, full benefit, we've got to do it his way. The song that should be written is I did it his way. And he got me through the storm. He got me through the valley. He got me through the crisis. He got me through the difficulty. He got me through the loss. He got me through the gain. He got me home. Thank you, God. Like I said, we got a lot to be thankful for. And you know it's true. So what does he do? He encounters a woman who has lost her only means of support, the only son of a widow, and many mourners from the village were with her. So these two crowds collide. One crowd is filled with the joy of being with God. Even if they don't realize it, they know there's something amazing about Jesus. So here's this crowd full of joy following Jesus, and they collide with a woman who's lost all hope and colliding with them full of grief. So grief and joy collides. Have you ever been in a celebratory mood and you encountered somebody with great sorrow and all of a sudden you felt guilty because you were happy and they were sad? This woman had lost her support. She'd lost her hope. She'd lost the potential of living comfortably to the end of her life. She was going to struggle from now on. It might shorten her life. Because now she'd have to rely on other people's good intentions. When the Lord saw her, you need to write in your Bible. If you're not writing in your Bible, put that one under glass. Go get one you don't mind writing in. I buy one with wide margins because I like to write notes. So this page doesn't have a lot of notes on it, but see that wide margin? Get one with white margin. It's called a note taker's Bible. And your Bible should look like, your Bible should look like that. Write in it. If Pastor Matt says something good, write it down. Write it down. So you can go back to it and you read that chapter again. You go, oh, I remember when Pastor Matt said that. That reminds me how much God loves me. That reminds me how willing God is to provide. That reminds me that I'm not alone in this. That reminds me that God will never forsake me or leave me. That reminds me that I'm going to get through this. That reminds me that there is nothing but good ahead of me, no matter what was behind me. I want you to underline this. Get your pen out. And a BIC is really good because they roll good on that thin paper. So get a BIC. Get a good one. I like ink. Some people like pencil. Uh, some people like color, uh, you know, they make a wax pen for Bible notes and it changes colors. You can have 10 different colors and have this colorful Bible that confuses you. Why did I even put that color there? I don't know what that was about. 
make notes in the front of your Bible. Yellow's for this, red's for that. You know, at least you'll know why you did that. But I like a ballpoint pen. That's my favorite. I write in my Bible. Write in your Bible. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. When's the last time you overflowed with compassion? When's the last time you overflowed with compassion? When you're overflowing with compassion, you know what you're saying? It's not about me. I don't have to overflow with compassion about myself. I need to overflow with compassion for you. You don't see Jesus in the Bible saying, oh, I just feel so sorry for myself. I got to go to the cross. Poor Jesus. I just, oh. <sighs> hey, guys, let's just take a minute and think about me. Hold on. We're going to have a moment of silence. Oh. <sighs> But on the most victorious day of his life, one that was predicted by the prophet Daniel, when Daniel said that on this calendar day, you look up that hill, you're going to see Jesus riding a colt. It'll be your Messiah. He's coming down on a colt. He's coming down this hill on this date in this way. The psalmist wrote a psalm about that day. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad. And Jesus, in the middle of people celebrating him, in the middle of people saying, Hosanna, God save us, in the middle of people celebrating who he was and what he was all about, in the middle of him being acknowledged as the Messiah, in the middle of him being celebrated, he stopped and looked out over the city and started to shudder and started to weep. Matter of fact, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He looked at that city and he said, if only you knew that I'm here. If only you knew how close I am. If only you knew how I want to gather you under my arms like a hen under its wings. If you only knew how bad I just want to draw you in. He wept. He knew what was coming. It wouldn't be that long. 70 AD was only about 27 years away. The Romans are going to destroy that town. They're going to be so mad at the Jews. They're going to plow that town under. They're going to do everything they can to wipe it off the map. And then they're going to build a siege ramp. And they're going to go up to the top of a mountain where Herod had a pleasure palace. And where people were hiding. And then they were going to find those people perished up there. And he wept. If only you knew your Savior is right here. Right now. Look through the Bible. As you read the Gospels, look for the word compassion. Moved with compassion. That describes our Savior. And Jesus wants us to be just like him. So he wants us to be moved with compassion too. Are you moved with compassion? Or has this world corrupted you? You know, we read in James, perfect and pure religion is to love widows and orphans and not to be corrupted by this world. When we let the world harden our heart, we're moving away from Jesus. Because Jesus will keep his heart soft, even at the worst. He said on the cross, I am up there. My back hurts so bad. Every piece of meat tore off my back. They can see my organs from behind. I'm stretched out on this thing, suffocating. And what am I saying to the people below me that are mocking me? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What? What? Shouldn't he have been up there saying, I hate you, yo buzzards? No, he's saying, Father, forgive them. He looks down at his mother and says, Mother, behold your son, talking about his disciple, because he's saying to him, Take care of mom. Wow. 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 Doesn't Jesus ever get selfish? Well, at the Garden of Gethsemane, it almost seemed that way. He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, If there's any other way to do this, Dad, Let's go a different route. Nevertheless, even though my flesh is filling this pain that's coming, not my will, but yours be done. What? Have you ever heard a kid sass back their parents? Just sassy, rebellious, disrespectful. Jesus says, I'm going to take on the sin of the whole world 
he explained it to the disciples at the Last Supper, and they just went right over their head. Matter of fact, Peter grabbed him and said, don't talk like that. Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. Jesus had that moment where his flesh was filling what was coming. I don't know about you, but nailing spikes into my body, hanging me from a cross, suffocating after being beat with a whip and mocked and having a crown of thorns platted into my forehead and having my beard pulled out and being bludgeoned until my eyes are swole shut and my lips swole out and my nose is broken and they've mocked me and called me names and I'm God, I'm the creator of the heavens and the earth, people. But he had so much compassion, he held his tongue. And when he stood with Pilate, Pilate said, don't you know I have the power of life and death over you? And Pilate said, Pilate hears Jesus respond, no, no you don't. You're not taking my life. I'm giving my life. Because I'm being moved with compassion towards you, Pilate. Pilate tried to wash his hands and get the, get the stink of it off. He felt the misery of what he was doing. He knew it was just their jealousy. He washed his hands. He said, this is on you. I don't want any part of it. But he had to approve it. He did have a part of it. His wife said, leave him alone. Stay away from that man. I've had some bad dreams. I don't want any part of this. And Pilate tried to back out. But when Jesus carried himself... He was smelling of royal smell. He was still covered in that ointment, that, that alabaster uh, you know, jar that had been broken, and he was still stinking with a lifetime of wages poured out on him. He still smelled like royalty. And when he stood there, Pilate saw the carriage of a royal man. He could have just lifted a finger and said, God, we're not doing this. He could have been gone. Pilate could have watched the first person just disappear. It could have happened. But he had too much compassion for you and me. What held him to this planet was his love for you and me. He was moved with compassion for the dilemma that you're going through right now. He was moved with compassion to the need that's in your life right now. He was moved with compassion for the struggle that you're facing right now. When he encountered this funeral and he saw that boy laying there being carried to his eternal home physically. He was, he's being carried to a grave. He was taking a dirt nap. He was about to be buried. He was moved with compassion. He knew that mama didn't know what she was going to do. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. He said, don't cry. Don't cry. He walked over to the coffin and touched it. And the bearers stopped. Young man, get up. Get up. Then the dead boy sat up and began to talk to those around him. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Jesus raised three people from the dead before he rose from the dead. Tabitha, this boy, Mary and Martha's brother. He said, roll the stone out of the way. They said, oh, oh no, he's, no, no, he's been in there a few days. You know, we don't have refrigeration and embalming. We're, you know, we just very quickly shut the door, seal it up, and try not to smell it. He said, open it. Lazarus, come on out of there, buddy. He was wrapped, so he probably hobbled out. He said, loose him. God has compassion for you. What are you going to do with that? God loves you. God wants to overflow your life with his compassion, his love, his peace, his joy. But he doesn't just want to fill you. He wants you to be a conduit into other people's lives. He wants you to be his hand extended. 
He wants the world to see him through you. If that's what Jesus is like, I want to meet Jesus. Could they say that about me or about you? If that's the way God is, I've got to rethink what I think about God. Can they say that about us? We can do what Jesus did. We can break up a funeral procession. There's a missionary from Sweden. He had a funny Swedish name. I don't recall it exactly. He went to Ethiopia with a permit to have a crusade. The Ethiopians are in the third highest site in the Muslim world. So there is Mecca, Jerusalem, and Ethiopia. So it's the third highest holy site in the Muslim world. They found out that a Christian was going to come talk about God, and they, reject, they pulled the permits. He couldn't have the soccer stadium he wanted. So he was able to finagle some permits so he could be in an open field, and he got some containers, and he put them together, put a stage on there. And what they do in the Muslim world is they pass out a ticket for a miracle. Here. You see, the Muslims will recognize power. Talk doesn't mean anything. We could argue with Muslims till we're blue in the face, but they, they recognize power, so he passed out tickets. Receive a miracle. Come to the crusade. And if you get saved, isn't that a miracle? If Jesus comes into your life and convinces you that everything you thought about being true was wrong and that he still loves you and he wants you even though you've been going the wrong direction all your life, isn't that a miracle? So the crusade was going and I wish I could remember his name. It was really funny. You remember that Swedish guy's name? Anyway, this missionary from Sweden is in Ethiopia. And these Muslims come up the aisle with a dead woman. She is dead. No life, no breath. She's dead. And they come up to the platform and they reach up and he bends down and picks her up and she's not stiff like rigor mortis is set in, but she's dead. No breath, no life. She is clinically, completely, absolutely dead. And he started walking back and forth across the platform. He said, oh God, oh God, oh God, what do I do? I'm not the one on trial here, you are. But we can touch this whole crowd if you'll just give her her breath back. We can touch this whole crowd. And he prayed and prayed and prayed and walked back and forth. And the Muslims, of course, are right there at the edge of the platform saying, prove it. Prove it! Show me that you have a God that's miraculous and powerful. You know, uh, if you've ever carried a child or grandchild that's asleep, they weigh twice as much, you know. They're limp, right? They're limp. And if they're out and they don't come to while you carry them to bed, they're heavy. He said he's walking back and forth and all of a sudden she starts to gain muscle tone. You know, she starts to, she starts to stiffen up a little bit. She's not as much like a sack of sugar or a sack of grain or something. And uh, she coughs and sputters and starts to breathe and gains some strength and he sets her legs down. <clears throat> he's still holding her. She's still limp hanging over him. And her feet touch the floor and she starts to stand. And he props her up. And when she's ready, he lets go and steps back. And God is glorified. Do you understand? God wants to be glorified through your life. They didn't think he was something special. They thought who he represented must be something special. Who do you represent? Who do I represent? What do they see? If it's a critical, snarky, smart aleck Christian, we're not even a Christian. But if it's somebody moved with compassion for a lost and dying world, they can't deny that love trumps hate every time. Love trumps hate. Hate doesn't mean anything. It doesn't get you anywhere. 
bitterness is just bitterness. It grinds your organs together until you just turn into dust. But love, love makes your life blossom. Love fills you with hope. Love fills you with joy. Love fills you with peace. God wants you to know him so well that people know him through you. The reason Jesus stopped and lifted that boy off of his deathbed was because he loved the woman who needed the boy. He was moved. He said, don't cry. And he fixed it. God wants to fix it. He wants to fix so much in your life that you can go out in his name and fix it in their life. This widow was going to bury her son. She had no idea she would encounter Jesus. She had no idea that God would come her way. She had no idea God heard her prayers. She had no idea that life would turn around. She had no idea that while they were carrying her son out, he would walk her back home. But Jesus, the God who sees, he saw. And I'm telling you, there's not one thing in this world you can't do something about. You want to heal this world? Be the healer. In Jesus' name, we can bring peace and joy and love and compassion. You know what's lacking right now? There's no compassion. We got these people that are at, at each other corner. Divided, fighting, picking at each other, calling each other names, won't talk to each other. That's the devil. The devil understands that you divide and conquer. God wants you to understand we are one in Jesus. We are one body. We are one people. We are gods. And we need to move like Jesus moved, filled with compassion. It's easy to have opinions. It's hard to have compassion. God fill us with compassion until it overflows. And we're really changing people's lives in Jesus' name. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father.